Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here. Thank you so much for joining me for a little bit of Life Over Coffee. I want to talk about self-esteem. This is one of the major doctrines in our culture today, and it is one of the most damaging belief systems that our culture has. In fact, I believe it's foundational to virtually all the psychological chaos that we find in our world today. But one of the things about self-esteem is that the Christian community has bought into its agenda. And that's what makes it so despairing for so many brothers and sisters in Christ because they do not realize that this idea, this ideology has crept in unawares. And like so many things in our culture, we do listen to what they are saying, and unfortunately, we believe in a lot of their teaching. So I hope over the next few minutes, I will be able to present a a better case, a better way of thinking about ourselves so that we do not get so twisted up in the hidden agenda of self-esteem. You see, thinking more about ourselves is not the path of freedom. I mean, just think about that on the face of it. Spending your days thinking about yourself is not going to make you feel better. It's not going to make you psychologically better either. The self-esteem agenda, it demands that we turn our thoughts onto ourselves, spending even more time thinking about ourselves. The Bible, as you might imagine, has a counterintuitive message. It's this. The more thoughts about God that we have, the freer we will be. The path to freedom is not by turning inward, but by turning upward and outward. As we practice loving God and others more than ourselves, it is a counterintuitive, anti-cultural worldview. Yeah, we can casually say that we know that the two great commandments is to love God and love others more than ourselves, but it has so many applications, and one of those applications is when we apply that to our lives, it will dismantle self-esteem, the self-esteem movement, the, de- the, the desire to focus on ourselves, and it will release us into the ultimate freedom that we can experience in Christ. Let me share, um, it's a cute illustration that has been going around the biblical counseling movement for a long time. This is a fictional counseling dialogue between the counselor and my friend Mabel. Mabel says, I hate myself because I am so ugly. And the counselor says, now Mabel, if you really hated yourself, you would be glad you were ugly. In fact, you may even seek ways to become uglier if you really hated yourself. Now, as you can see in that fictional hyperbolic story, now, again, I don't recommend that a counselor or any Christian have that conversation with someone, but it is a humorous way of communicating the problem with self-esteem. And as you can see, Mabel's problem is not that she hates herself. Mabel's problem is that she is infatuated with herself, and when she looks in the mirror, she sees something that it it doesn't please her. 
Also, you will find that it doesn't meet the standard of what our culture and the beauty gods uh, demand that we uh, meet. And if we compare ourselves to the culture and we look at ourselves in the mirror and we are not meeting that high standard, then our thoughts are just going to be all-consuming. Now, again, that's a humorous illustration, but it does speak about our friend Mabel who fell into the cultural trap of trying to look good as propagated by the self-esteem gurus who patrol the waters of pop psychology, spreading their soul-twisting teaching. The actual truth about Mabel is that she is in love with herself. The thing is, is that she hates the fact that she is so ugly now, according to her perspective. It's not that I, I don't know what beauty is, or I would not say that to her. I would not think that she was ugly. That's just not where my mind goes. But Mabel is the one that has the standard. She is the one that has the perspective. And so she hates herself because she is so ugly, according to her perspective. Grading beauty is a cultural phenomenon that changes according to the current social norms. The beauty gods manage people like Mabel as she craves the proverbial thumbs up according to those norms. Now, you can see the danger in this as we give our children their devices and they go out and to these platforms and they are looking for that proverbial thumbs up. They want to, they want to meet the standard of whatever it is that those platforms are selling. And they are so gullible, they're so naive, they're so vulnerable that they are persuaded that this is the optimal person. This is what beauty looks like. This is the proper dress size. This is the place where you can buy your clothes and none other. I was counseling a young man many, many years ago. He was uh, maybe 17 years of age, and he said to me, Mr. Thomas, you do not wear Walmart to high school. And what he communicated in that statement was his, his core theology, what he thought about God and his anthropology, what he thought about humanity. And he saw humanity as very large and God as very small. He had surmised that what cool is. And in his worldview, coolness was Abercrombie and Fitch. And he could only wear an Abercrombie and Fitch shirt to school. He would not be caught dead in a Walmart t-shirt because he was looking for the proverbial thumbs up. My little friend, he was similar to Mabel. He decided what beauty was, or in his world, what cool was, and he, he conformed to those social expectations because his thoughts were consumed with himself. And so he had to esteem himself properly. He had elevated self-esteem. He was consumed with self-thoughts and self-admiration, and he wanted to fit in. He wanted to get that thumbs up. Similar to Mabel, who looks in the mirror. Mabel doesn't like what she sees. Mabel and the culture's view of beauty are at odds. The culture says you have to wear this t-shirt or you have to look this way. You have to associate with those people and you have to go to those places and you have to possess these things. Well, according to Mabel, she did not, she could not ascend to the height of the beauty standards. Thus, Mabel hates what she sees in the mirror.
the only conclusion that she could come to is that, well, Mabel does not hate herself. She's got it wrong. She loves herself so much that she hates what she sees in the mirror. Mabel is fully on board, buying into what the culture is selling. She wants to be well-received by her peers, and that means, just like my friend with the t-shirt, that she must meet their expectations for beauty. The culture gods motivate Mabel to push, to press, to trim, to cut, to paint herself into a mold that she hopes that they will accept. The people she elevates in her mind to pass judgment on her have power over her. Mabel is like a puppet dangling on a string, hoping that those people who are bigger, larger, have more power. The people who have the opinions that she wants to garner those good favors, she has to hope that they will accept her some way, somehow, and so Mabel has fallen into self-worship. She is more concerned about people's opinions of her than God's thoughts about her. The Bible calls this the fear of man. When the fear of man has more power over you than the fear of God, then you are in the most vulnerable position that you can be, psychologically speaking. If you read that verse in Proverbs 29, 25, it reads like this, The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts the Lord is safe. That verse is written in Hebrew parallelism, meaning that there is a top line and a bottom line. The top line is counter to the bottom line. And if you look at the verse in Proverbs 29, 25, the top line says, The fear of man leads to a snare. Well, Mabel fears man. She is afraid of man. She is afraid of their opinion. She is afraid of what they may say, what they may not say. She wants their acceptance, their approval, wants their love, wants their respect. She's afraid of their rejection, and it has led her headlong into a snare. The bottom line says that he who trusts the Lord is safe, and so trust is juxtaposed to fear. Lord is juxtaposed to man, and safe is juxtaposed to a snare. Once God becomes large in our minds and in our lives, then He is the one that has management over us. And when He controls us, then people are small, and they cannot rule us or dominate us, and we are free, not in a snare. Mabel, well, public opinion and God's opinion are at war in her mind. And guess who is winning? Public opinion is the most dominating thing that she thinks about. And she's doing everything that she could possibly can with her body, with her clothes, with her associations, so that she can find that good approval of those within her sphere of influence, those people that she's trying to impress so that she can be uh, in uh, that particular crowd. Her culture teaches the self-actualized person. As we continue to ascend to the ultimate highest, to where we find uh, that, that person that we idolize in our lives, the person that we want to become, it's a teaching that mandates a high view of ourselves. Mabel's full on with that. Now, I'm not saying that she's doing this wittingly. 
More than likely, she's doing it ignorantly because we so buy into our culture. And one of the odd things is Christians spend so much time on social media looking at uh, Joanna Gaines and and the optimal home, uh, looking at the clothes or the people or this or that. And we are subtly, intentionally dulling our consciences to the point that we create this dissatisfaction in our life. And we put ourselves in this position for the most part. The self-esteem movement is one of the central planks in this self-actualized person platform. The counterintuitive teaching of the Bible cuts across the grain of the culture's platform. Let me uh, share with you a few verses that Mabel would not want to hear because there's no way that she would want to see herself like this. For example, in Job 42, verses 5 and 6, Job said, talking to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. When Job finally stopped talking, when he got a good vision of who God is and who he is, well, then the disparity was in place. God was mightily huge, and Job was minuscule. He put his hand on his mouth. He said, I've spoken once, but I'll not speak again. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. One of the things that I would want you to hear uh, in this particular verse, or these two verses in 42, 5, and 6, is that Job was in the most psychologically healthy place that he could begin. This is the starting point where all people must begin if they're going to experience wholeness. They have to despise themselves and repent in dust and ashes. Then they are in a place of humility. And it's in that place of humility where we experience God's extraordinary, empowering favor. Jesus did not come for the healthy. He did not come for those who did not need a physician. Jesus came for the broken, for the despairing, for the depressed, for those who despise themselves, and they are repenting in dust and ashes. Isaiah thought about these things in 64.6, and he says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. I mean, imagine this verse here in Isaiah 64, 6, when we, this is our counter to the self-esteem movement. Self-esteemers will not want to hear this. They will reject this out of hand. They will probably reject it emotionally because the only way that they can think is a high self-esteem. The only way that they can think is to adore themselves, and they will push and pluck and trim and twist themselves into that version that they believe is the idyllic person that other people will accept them. And they're so fragile, and Mabel is so fragile. We see it in our culture today with, with people who are, are so 
insecure, and so void internally that they see this optimal person, for example, as being in the other gender. And so a boy will change his name to a girl, and he will pretend to be a girl, and he will become angry at you if you do not esteem him as much, or her now, which is not true, as much as he esteems himself. We can't even dead name someone as they change their name. We would dare not uh, call them by their birth name because they are that broken, that sensitive. Uh, they are they are so uh, devoid of the kind of wholeness that the Bible says. And so when you come along and you, you say, well, you, you have become like one who is unclean and all of your righteous deeds, are they, they're like a, a polluted garment. You need to despise yourself and you need to repent in dust and ashes. That is such a counterintuitive message. And then Paul comes along in Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. And he says this, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now that's not my word. That's Paul's word that we are worthless. The Bible word, the theological term, is total depravity, that we are broken through and through, physically, spiritually, mentally. We talk about the noetic effect of sin, that total depravity affects our minds as well. We are worthless. That is the path to success. Understanding ourselves as worthless is the path to wholeness. At that point, God gives empowering favor. He wakes dead souls. He quickens our dead spirits. He uh, enlivens our futile minds, and He gives us the Spirit of God. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. He elevates us, but he elevates us by the grace of God and not because of what we were, what we had, what we possessed, who we were. We were worthless, as Paul says. You'll have to take that up with him. And then later on, he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so as Paul looked at the long line of sinners as they wrapped the globe, he saw himself on point. He saw him at the head of the line. The self-esteem movement runs in horror as they shout, no, this could not be true. Get away from me, you vile person. And Paul would say, yes, I am a vile person. But in verse 16 of 1 Timothy, he would talk about the grace of God that has redeemed him. The way up is down. The way out or the way in is to get out. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things. This is the last verse that I'm going to share with you, but I want to make a strong case to, to our deplorable condition. 
And so Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, I would not recommend that you sit Mabel down and that you just roll these scriptures across her mind. It would be a full frontal assault that she would not be able to receive, accept, or to take in at this point. It would cause her to plummet even further into despair. But what you want to do is to bring her to the place to where she can receive the truth of God's Word, recognizing how horrible and deceitful and desperately sick we are, because the ways of man is the way of death. This is Proverbs 14, verse number 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of those ways is most certainly death. And Mabel has a way that seems right to pluck, to trim, to push in, to puff up, to change, to paint, whatever, to tuck, uh, so that she can meet this beauty standard. And it's only going to lead her to ever-increasing dizziness, discouragement, because she can never attain under her own strength. She has to come to the recognition that I have to be low in order to be high. I have to recognize that I'm totally depraved. And in, from that position, God came for that person, not the healthy, but the sick. But self-esteem is a call to admire yourself. The person those, scripture, the person those scriptures describe, well, that is who Mabel is to admire. The desperately sick, deceitful uh, above all things, uh, the foremost sinner, the worthless individual, a polluted garment, a person who despises himself. Yeah, that's who we are to admire. Now, maybe that's not the best word to use at this point, but that is the reality that we have to step into rather than creating a delusion that we're trying to live in as though we are something that the Scriptures do not teach. This unbiblical teaching of self-esteem blinds many Christians because they believe that it is the solution for their problems particularly those who struggle with guilt and shame, fear and insecurity. And those things are true. There are many people that struggle with huge amounts of guilt. They are twisted in shame, that internal awkwardness of their souls. They live in this ongoing battle with fear. They are insecure people, and I'm not mocking or making fun of them. It is a a serious problem, but my point here is that the solution to the problem is not what the culture thinks. From a biblical perspective, the term low self-esteem has more inherent problems than what meets the eye. For example, if low self-esteem were the problem with an individual like Mabel, their solution would be for her to elevate her self-admiration. That is what self-esteem teaches. Mabel, you feel bad about yourself. You don't like who you are. You don't appreciate the fact that you are the foremost sinner. You don't uh, appreciate the fact that you are desperately sick, that you are like a polluted garment, Mabel. And so what you need to do is that you need to elevate your self-admiration. You need to love yourself. Do you see anything wrong with this solution compared to those verses that I just shared with you?
Loving herself more would actually lead her to more painful self-consciousness or delusions of grandeur, thinking she is somebody when in reality she is not. You see, as I was sharing earlier about the so-called trans person, he lives or she lives in delusions of grandeur. He doesn't like who he is, and so he has created a delusional world that he could step into so that he could feel better about himself because he doesn't like the person that he believes himself to be. Now, again, I'm not mocking him or mocking Mabel here. I would not do that. That is unkind. Unfortunately, too many in the Christian culture are are sinfully angry, and they, they mock these people who live in these delusional conditions. That's not going to motivate them to change at all. That's not going to open the door for them to hear uh, the freeing message of the gospel. Imagine if Mabel was one of those people, and I just mocked her because of her delusional thinking. No, that's not going to win her to Christ at all. And so if we want to win an argument, we can do that with a hammer. But if we want to see God redeem people, then we have to change our attitudes because these people are significantly caught in a trap. They have imbibed in the self-esteem culture. They're living it on steroids, and they can't get themselves out. The only solution that they know is to live in these delusions of, of grandeur or live in this painful self-consciousness, but that is only going to accelerate and expedite an end that will not be satisfying at all. Paul taught in Galatians 6.1 that if a person is caught in a transgression— like what I'm describing with my friend Mabel or the trans person. He says, You who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself so that you are not tempted. And so there is a better approach than what we see with too many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're just fed up with it. We're just angry, and we're not paying attention to the Bible, and so we are attacking them, not recognizing that they are caught, and our call is to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on ourselves lest we send our brains out. And unfortunately, we're sending our brains out, and so we're hardly winning the argument, and we're definitely not winning them to the message of Christ. And so with Mabel, if liking herself was the problem, which it, it, which it is, she doesn't like herself, well, thinking more about herself, it's not going to set her free, but it's only going to further enslave her. One of the deceptions of self-esteem is to spend more time thinking about ourselves when the truth is our thoughts our thoughts of ourselves already consume us. I love me. I am number one. And you think similarly, we think about ourselves most of all. And if we do not put guardrails up on that kind of thinking, it will take us to some bad places. But that is exactly what the self-esteem movement is teaching. Elevating our self-esteem leads to individualism. I can only think about myself. 
Individualism leads to ungodly competitiveness. I have to be better than you. If that's what beauty is, then I want to not just look like that, but I want to look better than that. If that is the coolest t-shirt in high school, then, well, I want one not just like that, but one better than that. Self-esteem leads to individualism, which leads to competitiveness, which pits people against people, totally contrary to the other-centered teaching of the New Testament. We believe in community. And as we count others more significant than ourselves, then we will be living in community. But if we imbibe upon the self a self-esteem mantra and its teaching will become more individual, individualistic, more competitive as we pit ourselves against each other. One of the ways Mabel thinks better about herself is to compare herself to others. And so she thinks that she is ugly according to her perspective, and so she is constantly scanning the room. She wants to find somebody that she is better in her view, that she looks better. And then she can feel better about herself because she looks better than that person across the room. And so she picks them apart. She finds their flaws. Self-esteem leads to loving God less while looking down on your neighbor with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. We cannot love God and others. We cannot accomplish what Paul was teaching in Philippians chapter 2, counting others more significant than ourselves, which is one aspect of having the mind of Christ. We cannot have the mind of Christ if we if we not loving God and others more than ourselves. We will always be trying to elevate ourselves through self-admiration, which can only happen by the ungodly de-admiration of other people. You see, self-esteem also leads to self-righteousness. That's that greater-than-better-than attitude. It is a lofty perch. It is a man standing in the temple, smoting his breast and saying, Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this publican over here. Mabel's pursuit of high self-esteem, it diminishes the two greatest commandments. To be a good self-esteemer, we must allow others to control us by their opinion of us. Now, that's kind of ironic, is that as Mabel is scanning the room to see who she can elevate herself above, in actuality, that person across the room is actually controlling her. The beauty queen across the room, that is the person that has Mabel on as a, as a puppet uh, on a string. Because if you're going to be a good self-esteemer, then you give people that kind of control. What do you think of me? Do you accept me? Will you approve me? Please love me. Please don't disrespect me. Don't reject me. You see, people have the power. This twisted inversion is why Mabel's appearance paralyzes her. She needs positive feedback from others. I need you to convince me that I am acceptable. If you put me down, if you make fun of me, if you say that I'm ugly, it would damage my high self-esteem agenda. Of course, I would have to go back. 
to the drawing board and double down on changing myself into something that others will find more appealing to entice them to accept me. This process is an exhausting feedback loop. It may be surprising to you uh, if you could have honest conversations with other people about this very thing and try to draw them out and get them to express how they are managed by other people. The cars that they drive, the homes in which they live, the places that they go, the money that they have, the clothes that they wear, the things that they own, the jobs that they have. I mean, it's not just a teenage thing on social media. Adults, we need that feedback from other people, hoping that we will be with the right crowd, with the right individual, in the right context. Everybody's dying to be there, and I've got to be there too, because there is the cool place. As my young friend said, I wouldn't be caught dead wearing a Walmart t-shirt. In Proverbs 29, 25, I mentioned, it says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Mabel is in a snare because she fears man. She is afraid what man is going to say to her, how they will receive her, their opinion of her. She's entrapped. It is a bear trap, as Paul says. If anyone is caught in a transgression, Mabel is surely, most certainly, absolutely caught. You who are spiritual, come alongside her. Restore her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself because you could be tempted. And the truth is, we are no different than Mabel. We're no different than the transgender person. Those temptations are the same in us. We may not have gone that far. We may not have expressed them the way that they are by the grace of God, only because of the grace of God. Self-esteem is also known as shame. And so if you want to deal with this topic of self-esteem, one of the things that you'll have to do is to label it biblically, and that is part of the problem. You see, we not only believe what the uh, culture teaches, and we, we not only act it out, but we do that first by accepting their labels, by accepting their nomenclature. And so we use their language, and the label is what's on the door. And if you believe the label, you'll walk through the door, and if you walk through that door, you'll be on the wrong path. And so the first thing that we need to do is to relabel a very real problem. And instead of self-esteem, what we're really talking about is shame. Mabel is struggling with shame, that internal awkwardness of the soul. It's what it means in part to be born in Adam. He began to experience shame in the early hours of the garden, and he knew it. His eyes were open, and he could see in a way that he could never see before. And the first thing he did was grab fig leaves to cover himself up. He became insecure. That is a cultural term for self-esteem, insecurity, Codependency, you probably have heard, or peer pressure. Th those words are fine, but those are not the most accurate words. Uh, the person is struggling with shame. They're controlled or, or intimidated by the opinions and perspectives and the views that others have about them. 
What others think of the self-esteemer has more controlling power over that person than what God thinks of them. And again, that's what you see in that verse, Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man or insecurity or biblical shame, it will elevate man's opinion above the opinion of God. And so people become enlarged and God becomes small. You see, insecurity or shame says, I will feel better if you like me. If you reject me, I will feel bad. I need you to like me. Now, if feeling good about yourself is dependent upon the attitude of others toward you, then your friends will control your thoughts, your emotions, and they will let you know what they think about you. If they tell you that you're cool, you feel good. If they tell you that you're uncool, or they give you the proverbial thumbs down, you feel bad. If you buy into the culture's version of, of shame, which is low self-esteem, then you're moving headlong into a trap. The answer is not how people view us. That's not the answer. We've got to get away from thinking what people think about us. Now, I'm not talking about not caring what people think, because that in itself is delusional. We want to care what people think. We don't want to be a stumbling block before people. We want to imitate Christ. We want them to see our good behaviors. They want to see our Christianity in action. We want to be an example to everyone. And so we want to care in that sense of what other people think, but we do not want to be controlled by other people. Jesus was the freest man who ever walked on earth. He was completely untethered to the controlling opinions of other people. And so the answer is not how people view us if we want to break this sin habit. The answer is an ever-increasing awareness that we are naked before God, and He must clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you remember nothing else from this, that is the key statement as far as the solution is concerned. Job said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you, and I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. The answer is an ever-increasing awareness that we are naked before God, and the only answer, the only pathway out of here is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not clothing ourselves with better makeup. Not clothing ourselves with the latest fashion. Not clothing ourselves with the right neighborhood, the right vehicle, the right job, and the right power tie. We have to clothe ourselves in something else. It is divine, and it is given to us by another person. It is an alien righteousness, is what it's called theologically, a righteousness that does not belong to us. It belongs to Christ. We do not get it because we were pretty enough. We do not get it because we were thin enough. We do not get it because we were strong enough. 
We get it because we despised ourselves. We recognize what Isaiah said, that we are polluted garments. We did not have high self-esteem. We had a sober reality of who we are before God, totally depraved and in need of His grace, imposing itself in our lives and clothing us in the righteousness of Christ. If our thoughts about ourselves consume ourselves, our problem is not low self-esteem. Actually, it's high self-esteem. A low estimation of ourselves, that implies thinking of ourselves less. Mabel doesn't have low self-esteem. Mabel has off the chart, off the chain, high self-esteem. Mabel cannot stop thinking about herself. She cannot stop esteeming herself. Jesus is the most remarkable example of this. Self-forgetfulness is the perfect mental attitude for serving others. Jesus didn't come here to serve himself. He was very clear in 1045 of Mark. But he came here to serve others. He wasn't a needy man. He wasn't self-focused. He was focused on loving God primarily and then serving others secondarily. And so Mabel's mind was an endless feedback loop of self-thought. She wondered what people thought about her. She would tell you what people thought about her. She would carefully, she carefully measured her words so others would accept her. She feared wearing the wrong clothes, hoping never to be out of step with her culture. Mr. Thomas, you do not wear Walmart to high school. She would never see her, you would never see her without makeup, always presenting herself perfectly to her culture. Mabel lived in an entangling maze of painful self-awareness. Whenever she left a social gathering, she went into her mind-bending, mind-reading routine, assuming the thoughts of others about her. Have you ever done that, where you just assumed that this person was thinking this, when they said nothing. Insecure people will do that all the time. Uh, they have the gift of mind reading, which actually they don't. More times than not, virtually all the time, they are wrong. Mabel's carefully constructed and often wrong in- interpretations led to more despair. It would mortify Mabel to know that people rarely gave her much thought at all. Some people have said that to me at times because they know that I'm a counselor and they say, we, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, sometimes when I hang out with you, I know you're analyzing me. I've never said this, or maybe I have said it to real close friends, but I would not say this uh, unless it was a super close friend. But what I want to say is, uh, actually, I'm not thinking of you at all. Actually, I don't care that much about you. I don't want to, like... Uh, plummet your high self-esteem, your high self-estimation that you <laughs> that you have of yourself. And maybe this will be disappointing to you, but I'm not thinking of you at all. You see, Mabel's friends were far too busy thinking about themselves than thinking about her. This is the ultimate irony of the self-esteem movement. None of us are thinking that much about other people unless we're gossiping about, <laughs> unless we're gossiping about them. So Mabel went to counseling. She went to a secular counselor, as you might imagine. And during her first counseling session, the secular counselor told Mabel, 
hey, Mabel, you suffer with low self-esteem. And so he attempted to motivate her to think more highly of herself. Can you imagine how dangerous that is? He was unwittingly, or yeah, I would say he was unwittingly leading her into an inescapable trap. Mabel was already consumed with herself. The counselor pushed her back into her prison of self-preoccupation. The more Mabel gazed into her inner conflict in an attempt to wrap a positive mental attitude around her self-loathing, the more inward and awkward she became. Her social awkwardness only affirmed what she already believed about herself. She was exactly what she thought others thought of her. It's confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is when you have, in this illustration, you have an opinion of yourself, and then you find out through others that that opinion is actually true. It is an endless maddening loop that sends you in a spiral. And as the weeks passed, Mabel became exasperated, exhausted, isolated from her world. You see, high self-esteem is an individualistic, self-centered worldview, not a communal one. Individualistic and competitive. And so the more we esteem ourselves, the more we will isolate ourselves from others. Mabel withdrew from others, hiding in plain sight, even when she was in community. Christ-focused, other-centeredness leads people back to the community. And, And though she lived with real flesh and blood people, she mentally checked out. She was hiding in plain sight. How many people do that? It it, it really should be motivation for us to be more intentional about our relationships, to ask God to give us a level of discernment that we can see, that we can discern, that we can understand people in such a way, and be motivated to be able to move toward them in a loving and restorative way because they are caught in a bear trap, as Paul said in Galatians 6.1. Well, three months after her initial counseling session, Mabel committed suicide. The report in the local newspaper said Mabel suffered from low self-esteem. Not true. Mabel suffered from the blinding and penetrating force of high self-esteem. Her thoughts about herself went off the high end of the self-esteem chart. While hiding from others in plain sight, she became a twisted, self-absorbed, irritable person who found no reason to live. She inevitably turned so inward that there seemed to be no hope from her perspective. You see, if you take those verses that I shared with you earlier from Job and Isaiah and from Jeremiah and from 1 Timothy, all of those verses say that we're bad to the bone. All of those verses are accurate. The secular counselor was sending Mabel inward. He was sending her into the very things that Job and Isaiah and Paul and Jeremiah were saying. And if you spend your days looking inward into the darkness, the morass of our dysfunction, well, like Mabel, she was looking and heading in the wrong direction. And that will only cause you to spiral 
until ultimately you are completely exasperated and all you could do is self-harm, or in her case, the worst case of self-harm, which was suicide. A person beholding to the high self-esteem mantra, they are running headlong into the trap of insatiable individualism as they elevate their thoughts to dangerous levels of self-awareness. Mabel needed to look outside of herself to rest in the reality of someone far superior to herself. Christ is the answer for inner contentment and outer significance. To be in Christ is to be all you can be, which is, by the way, that is your best life now, to be in Christ alone. Jesus came to rescue us from ourselves, to pull us out of what Job and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Paul were saying, not to turn us into all of that darkness. Looking inward to elevate our estimation of ourselves will lead anyone to dizzying disappointment. Mabel attempted to self-talk her way into attaining the unattainable height of all she could be, but was left empty. From her perspective, there was no reason to live. She thought she was heading for the light. She was self-deceived, which led to self-enslavement, which led to self-harm. She walked headlong into the darkness of her inner turmoil, never knowing about the Savior who sets the captives free. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16. He says, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. Mabel needed to lose her life so that she could find the new life in Christ. John the Baptist said it this way in John 3.30, one of my favorite verses. He said, He must increase, but I must decrease. And as I mentioned earlier, the great Apostle Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. That is the total decreasing of self. The Apostle Paul was saying aloud, what John said, I must decrease, or as Paul said it another way, I am the chief of sinners. Now, do you think John or Paul struggled with a lack of self-worth? A good question to ponder. I will pause just, as, just for a second for you to answer that question, yes or no. I mean, if you ask them, hey, John, Paul, do you struggle with a lack of self-worth? Well, first of all, you would ha have to explain self-worth to them since that language became part of our vocabulary during the latter decades of the last century. From a historical perspective, self-worth was not a common consideration or a regular part of a Christian's understanding and application of sanctification. Self-worth is a new mantra. This is one of the ways that the Christians have psychologized Christianity. And so we say, well, we don't want to be beholding to self-esteem, so we'll be beholding to self-worth. All we have done is we painted self-esteem with the words self-worth. Any Christian who argues for a prominent place for self-worth in our understanding and practice of sanctification is making a mountain out of a molehill because the Bible does not speak to this issue in the way that they are arguing. Their primary argumentation comes from the influence of psychology books written in the 20th century. 
The closest that you can find self-worth in the Bible, and by the way, that's why Paul and John, they would not have this language or this understanding, but the closest that you could come to finding self-worth in the Bible would be God making us in His image. Everyone is made in God's image. But the accent mark is not on self-worth, and that is the problem. It would be wrong to put the point of emphasis on the word image rather than the word God. We are made in the image of God. One of those is primary, the other is secondary. Being made in the image of God would be of no value if God was not valuable. Let me illustrate that point. For example, a painting, a portrait, a painting on your wall, in your home, finds its value from the artist who painted it. If the artist is famous, then the painting is valuable. The point of emphasis is primarily on the painter of a famous painting, not the painting. When you walk into a museum to adore a painting, let's say that that you see Rembrandt. The the painting is uh, self-portrait in a a cap, uh, mouth wide open or or wide-eyed and open mouth. Self-portrait in a cap, wide-eyed, open mouth. That is a sketch by Rembrandt. So let's say that you walk into a museum and you see that, that sketch. Now you could say... I saw self-portrait, open mouth. Or you could say, I saw a Rembrandt. The first is the painting, circa 1630. Self-portrait, open mouth. The second is the painter who painted the portrait. Rembrandt is what makes the painting famous. What makes us so valuable If we want to focus on worth, what makes us so valuable is that God is the painter. He made us in His image. To carve out a psychological doctrine that emphasizes us, the image, to create self-worth, is wrong-headed. The main point is always about the Creator, not the creation. When the point of emphasis drifts from the artist who made the image to the image itself, we are more psychological than theological. The more sinister possibility is that we will become like Mabel, a worshiper of the creature more than the Creator. In my counseling experience with insecure people, I've never found a person work their way out of insecure thought patterns without taking John's advice. He must increase, but I must decrease. I must focus on the painter, not so much on the portrait. It is the painter that makes the portrait famous. If you are shy, if you're insecure, if you're codependent, if you struggle with peer pressure, again, the biblical term for all of those issues is the fear of man. If that is you, then I appeal to you to learn how to think of yourself less while thinking of God more. If thoughts about God consume you, then you're on the path to freedom. The painting feels good about itself when the painter 
walks into the room. The painter walks into the museum and the painting straightens itself up and just moves itself a little bit off the wall and it shines just a little bit brighter because the painter has walked into the room. It's like the sheep looking at the shepherd. In Psalm 23:1, David said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We can see the sheep there in the corral. And then the shepherd walks in and the sheep looks. There he is, the Lord. He is my shepherd. I shall not want. The sheep is making much of the shepherd. The painting is making much of the painter. And we, if we want to be free, we have to make much of God who created us in his image. I want to ask a few questions before I wrap up, and, and I'll just roll through these. And Actually, if you want to find uh, this, what I just shared with you at lifeovercoffee.com, just type the word loving me, the hidden agenda of self-esteem. And so you could type hidden agenda of self-esteem, and you can read everything I just shared with you. Here's a question. Do the opinions of other people control you? Now, that's yes or no, and so my follow-up is why or why not? Do the opinions of other people control you? And I'm asking here in an adverse way, uh, something like Mabel. If that's true, then it, it would be important to talk to someone about that. Number two, if they do, who is the person that has that kind of control over you? Who is it that you're trying to impress? or hoping they will like you enough not to reject you. And I can imagine that could be many teenagers that are listening to this and, and say, well, you know, that's my parent. I don't want my parent to reject me because my parent is harsh. My parent's unkind. My parent is angrily authoritative. My parent is mean. And I, I don't want them to reject me. I want them to like me. And that is a that is another aspect of this kind of bondage, and actually that can set the pathway for them to be in this bondage all of their lives. In many cases, that's how it generates. That's how it begins when kids are in homes like this where they are not shepherded, uh, but through cruel means. They are, they are shaped in such a way that they want to be loved. They want to be liked. They don't want to be rejected. Now, if that is you, I do appeal to you to get some help. Number three, why do you give them the power to manage you? Number four, how does God think about you? Now, I've asked this question many times of people, and it'd be interesting. It's been interesting in some of those occasions to hear what they thought. They did not think God thought well of them because they've been trained for people in authority not to think well of them. And then what effect does God's opinion have on you? And then finally, are you characterized as a worshiper of the painter or the painting? I've titled this Loving Me, The Hidden Agenda of Self-Esteem. Again, you can find it at lifeovercopy.com. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercopy.com.